Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of November 11th, 2019. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim talks about Walt Disney Imagineering's previous attempts to get a Mickey-themed attraction built at the Disney parks. Before we do all that, let's bring in the man whose health tips include standing up at your desk, then leaving your office and never coming back. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? The downside of that plan, Len, is today we're supposed to get our first snowstorm here in New Hampshire. Really? Going outside, not an option. So I'm standing at my desk for the interim till I, <laughs> I come up with a new plan. So. You, know, you, you joke about the, uh, the winter storms, but uh, I think I've, I've said on the show last mm. year, I took a Disney cruise in October to Quebec from New York. And it was one of the best Disney cruises I've ever been on. And we stopped off at uh, this town called Saguenay mm -hmm. in, uh, in Quebec. Tiny town. I think I've talked about it on the show. Super small. Uh, anyway, uh, next weekend, I'm actually going back to Saguenay just Ooh. to see what it's like in the winter. I don't know what made me think Northern Quebec in November is the thing to do. But uh, yeah, apparently it will not be above freezing. The entire time I'm there. Just saying, I hope you like gray skies. <laughs> it is. There's a, a whole lake effect that going. I'm really going to see the, so I've been following their minor league hockey team, the uh, the Shikudumi Saginays, uh, the Sags. So I'm going to see they've got a, a homestand, uh, three games in like four days, something like that. Uh, oh, so I'm going to go, cool, go cool. watch them play. It'll be fun. Speaking of seasonal things, though, I, I have to say, I forget who it was that actually put this up on Twitter, but they had video of uh, Halloween at Celebration, and you and Laurel make a oh. cameo appearance in this thing. Did we really? Yes, you're sitting on your front steps with your infamous box of chocolate handing out, you know, I guess the two of you are saying- Laurel's glass of wine. <laughs> Laurel's there we go. Wine. Yeah. So, so what was that like? What was your first Halloween in the New Digs at Celebration like? We were told to expect 1,100 kids by a friend yeah. who lives sort of on the, the outer perimeter of Celebration. We ran out of candy at 1,500 kids at 7.45 p.m. <laughs> and I should have known something was up when our neighbor, who's a former cast member, by the way, said he had brought 75, he had bought 75 pounds of candy and hoped that would be enough this year. <laughs> wow. Like, okay. We're in trouble here, Laurel. So we, uh, we did the best we could. You know, it's like, well, kids, relish, you know, your, your own individual <laughs> stick of butter. Hey. Got a potato. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Tried so. pasta this year. It's all the rage. Yeah. So yeah. the uh, the other thing that we noticed was so we got, you know, fun-sized candy bars. And again, I spent many hundreds of dollars on Halloween candy. When I looked at the bags and the baskets of the kids who were mm. going through my neighbors, my neighbors were giving out full-size candy bars. Mm. So imagine, imagine giving out 1,500 to 2,000 full-sized candy bars. Oh. I have I have many questions. One, where do you put that many candy bars? Like it, it would literally be the size of a closet. Mm -hmm. Number two, when do you start buying those? Because you're not dropping two grand the week before Halloween on, on candy bars. Where would, hey, where would you buy them? How would you get them shipped? Mm -hmm. Like when do you, do you start buying them in January? And you just say, okay, every month this year for the next 10 months, I'm just going to set aside $200 for Halloween candy? Is that what happens? I don't know. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Anyway, lesson learned. And next time, next next year is a contest, and I'm 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 all about winning. 
So. Okay. Okay. Right. I'll just you know, to, I, for my kids, it, it's just the combination of you the end of the evening with incipient diabetes, as well as arms that are the length of an orangutan from, you know, bags <laughs> full of full size candy bars. Holy cow. Nothing. Nothing. It started at four. It started at four o'clock. Ran out of candy at 745. Yeah. Oof. Anyway, nah, there's always next year, Jim. There's always next year. Okay. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Allison H., Johnny Money, and Matthew P., and longtime subscribers, Liz M., Melissa I., and Mike, the drummer. True story, Jim, these are the botanists who figure out which plants in the animal kingdom are edible. Apparently, it's a lot of trial and error, so if Liz offers to bring a salad to your Thanksgiving potluck, maybe suggest a nice cheesecake instead. Nothing quite like a salad that bites back. So no, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I thought about this because I was at the Animal Kingdom a couple of days ago, and mm-hmm. you go through the park looking at the the shops that set up for Christmas decorations. But the Animal Kingdom, did, the park itself, did not have the decorations in. But the park looks to be in really, really good shape. A lot of lot of the animal trails look good. I swear they've done construction around the Oasis and around some of the other trails to to enhance that. It looks the park looks really good. So super happy with that. Can't wait to see this new holiday programming, which what starts within the next week or two, right? I'm going to head up tonight and see what happens. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. All right, uh, Jim, let's do the uh, the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Real quick, Jim, our very good friend Steve Barrett, who you all know as the Hidden Mickey Guy, has his 2020 edition of his Hidden Mickey books out for Walt Disney World and Disneyland. So if you or your kids are planning a trip to Walt Disney World and enjoy looking for Hidden Mickeys, Steve's book is the gold standard for this sort of thing. You can pick up copies for cheap at hiddenmickeyguy.com. Here's why I, I tell this story, Jim. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't think I've ever actually said this before. So way back in the early days of touringplans.com, when we were producing touring plans, we wanted to do... We wanted to include on the touring plans some interesting facts for people while they were uh, going through the park. So, you know, we would have little bits of trivia. And I think I, I might have asked you for some of the trivia, but this is like mid-1990s or so. And so one of the things we wanted to do was to um, was to include hidden Mickeys for people to find. Mm-hmm. But rather than like, you know, trying to do it ourselves because Steve had already been established, Steve has been the hidden Mickey guy forever. So oh, yeah. rather than, than me trying to, you know, step on anybody's toes or whatever, I called him up. It's like, hey, Steve. Mm-hmm. I want to put some hidden Mickeys on these, these things called touring plans. Can we use some from your book? Mm-hmm. Imagine we were, if we were dealing with a large corporation, imagine the bureaucracy involved mm-hmm. with that kind of request, right? There's all sorts of intellectual property things to be worked out, right? There's how much money do we make? What's it going to impact our sales? Anyway, Stephen took like three, uh, Steve took like three seconds. He's like, yeah, that's fine with me. And let me do it. <laughs> and ever since then, I always thought, well, this is a guy, you know, this is a pretty reasonable guy. And Steve's, you know, I've seen, I've known him for years. He's a great mm-hmm. guy. Uh, his whole family is very nice. Uh, he does a wonderful job with the books. So I, I, I always think fondly back about, about that particular thing because I think it tells you like who Steve is as a person. So I don't know. Absolutely. But at the same time, it's like that job has gotten tougher and tougher over time with, how many parks now? And you know, each, yeah. each of the individual and resorts. The cruise lines. He's got a, he's got a book uh, on the cruise lines. Yeah, yeah. Every, everybody needs a hobby. It keeps them off the streets. Well, that's that's. <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> anyway, all right, Jim. On to the news. Jim, uh, what's the latest on the Epcot Space 
220 restaurant. It was supposed to open this year, right? Yeah. So uh, the, there's apparently news floating around that the restaurant may have lost its executive chef for a gig in uh, Las Vegas. What's going on here, Jim? That gives you some idea of a the level they were going for. You know, the, the type yeah. of guy that they felt they needed to launch this. And more to the point, that also gives you a sense of what Disney, the Disney World Resort's actual competition is these days. I mean, oh, yeah. they were able to, to go to this guy and it's just like, look, we can match that salary. We can give you, <laughs> again, you don't have to live in Florida. Well, but you have to live in Las Vegas. <laughs> so well, I, I, you know, I don't know, Jim. The rumor was that he went to the win, right? Yeah. I was at the win. I stayed for a while in August and I really mm. liked the win. The win, especially given what Steve Wynn was dealing with, it is in a situation now where they, they really need to, to, to be hard charging to sort of turn their rep around. So we should expect that this sort of thing, they're going to continue this sort of thing, that they'll poach yeah. top talent to get people to decide, am I getting on a plane to go to Nevada or am I getting on a plane to go to Florida? But this was not good news for Disney. On the other hand, it's still... Going to be an amazing restaurant in a primo location in what will be in the next two years Disney World's busiest park. My understanding is they're out fielding resumes now and trying to chase down a new candidate. So, so the, the restaurant was supposed to open this year. Now the opening date is winter. And I note that winter runs from December 21st through March 22nd. Yeah. <laughs> Most of those days, Jim, being in 2020. 2021 is our 50th anniversary year. And Disney wanted to have this restaurant locked and loaded going into the 50th. They didn't want to necessarily be doing soft opening, playing with the menu, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, it'll be open. It'll be open early next year, I would think. Yeah, there's open. Fair enough. Uh, So, Jim, another uh, news I'm told that uh, Save the Date announcements have gone out for Disney World's Rise of the Resistance media event in early December. Mm -hmm. So, it's looking likely that Rise will open on time. Uh, have you heard anything about previews, or is it going to be one of those things where the paint is still drying, so we're not going to be able to do previews? I know that they have spoken with cast members about some after-hours stuff to get some bodies in this thing. There's that whole phase of it's not just that the attraction itself is operating smoothly, it's queue management, it's you know how you disperse people post-show, that sort of thing. So. Disney's trying to do a lot of this stuff after hours, which yep. uh, is also, it's tough to do this time of year when you, you think about how many bodies you're grabbing for after hour opportunities to do things like run Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party. Right. It's challenging. And, and the fifth is coming up fast. Yeah. Less than a month away now. Yeah. I mean, we've got four weeks. Yeah. yeah. Going to be very interesting, to, especially with Thanksgiving. I was just going to say, how, how, how many people, how many cast members will be having their Thanksgiving dinner on Batu this year? <laughs> <laughs> Working their way through it, right? Is this now the Andorian chicken? You mentioned that, and I didn't, I didn't include it in the news this week, but for the last couple of shows, we've mentioned how Disney's gone back and forth and back again on the, the menus at Batu, uh, dropping the old... Star Wars names for the menu items like the chicken, then mm-hmm. going back to, to and, and going back to strictly English versions like "Hey, it's chicken," and then going back again to the to the menus. And it looks like they've arrived at a compromise, Jim, where they now say the Batu name, and then after that say chicken. So it's like the yeah. tip yip chicken dish, right? So everything now has like a blended Batu and English 
name on the menu. Compromise is the name of the game, Jim. But the interesting thing for me is, for example, the Andorian chicken, as in uh, the Moon of Andor. This is something that's known from Return of the Jedi, likewise from Star Tours. They finally found a part of the Venn diagram where it's okay. It's Star Wars, but it's familiar to older Star Wars fans, right. which, again, has been one of the complaints about the Star Wars Galaxy's Edge thing is that it's not enough old Star Wars. And it just right. sort of like, I uh, look, nothing personal. I just want the person in front of me to look at the menu, pick an item, and move. Exactly. Not, <laughs> yeah. not just stare at like, where are the noodles from? You know, it's like, just, just order your food and go. What I would like to see in the next movie or book is who on Endor raises the chickens? Is it the Ewoks? <laughs> like, is there an Ewok chicken farms? Is there some some equivalent of Purdue chicken wow. on on Endor? And if so, is it is it the Ewok who who raises the chickens? These are the questions I need to know the answers to. I'll talk with Kenzie <laughs> and he'll if, get right on any, those people at this at, at, at Star Wars publishing. If speaking of, uh, on the save the date for the media event, if anyone is going and listening. If mm-hmm. that's the question that you could ask, yes. I would greatly appreciate it. And please get back to us. Okay. <laughs> where where are the chickens raised? <laughs> and like what's the what's the what's the Ewok equivalent of humanely raised? Like Ewokian? Who looks out for the chicken welfare on yeah, we're the yeah, we're many questions, just- Jim. I don't know how much there is for chicken feed out among the redwoods, but okay. Exactly. I didn't remember seeing that maybe maybe there'll be CGI uh, Ewoks in the next uh, director's cut of this. Or sorry, CGI uh, chickens. All right. There we go. Mm -hmm. On to listener questions, Jim. Our friend Brian writes, I was listening to the old Tomorrowland Timekeeper soundtrack and realized something. The Paris Exposition of 1900, where Nai meets Jules Verne, in H.G. Wells was also where the first public demonstration of 360-degree video, a thing called Cineorama, occurred. But the show never mentions it, and I don't remember any references to it in the movie. Did the Imagineers who wrote the Visionarium Timekeeper story do that intentionally or realize it? And more generally, how did they choose that event, the Paris Exposition of 1900, to be the focus of the story? Jim? Okay. If I'm remembering correctly, they were looking for a specific event where Jules Verne and H.G. Wells were legitimately supposed to be, and that the gentleman who wrote the show had come across this reference to... I don't think they'd actually been there on the exact same day, but they had taken in the Paris Exposition of 1900, both on separate dates. So it's kind of a fudge factor. Okay. Well, they were there. On the other hand, the Cinorama, the Imagineers really had no idea that this had occurred, and I want to say the attraction was up for about four or five years when somebody shared the history with them, and they were like, oh! That's exactly what we meant. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been so cool if we'd put that in the attraction. (laughs) This is 1992 that this attraction first opened, and Google didn't exist at that point, and so you couldn't have the entire world at your fingertips, just most of it. I'd be absolutely fine with uh, with Timekeeper coming back in some form, though. Yeah, I genuinely enjoyed that show. It was sad to see it go. All right, uh, Jim, next question. The always fabulous Steven writes, do you think they'll be putting Disney Plus into the Disney Resort hotels? Sort of like, here's a free sample. Subscribe when you get home. 
So Jim, uh, Disney Plus is launching like any day now, right? In regard to putting it in the hotel rooms, yes, yes, you know, that uh, there will be paperwork, there will be, you know, any possible opportunity to make folks aware of Disney Plus, Disney is doing that. In fact, this coming weekend, they're doing a programming event where a high school musical, the series, on one night, it's like, what is it, ABC, Disney Channel, ESPN, I would imagine, you know, that if they could figure out how to broadcast it on the surface of the moon, for those of us who aren't <laughs> watching television, you know, they're going to do it that night. Give them the title of the show with all of the punctuation in it. Oh, God, it's High School Musical, The Musical. High School Musical, colon, The Musical. Colon, The colon, Series. The you Series. Know, and <laughs> with that many colons, I need to go see my proctologist. So it's just sort of like, no. What is with the title? I guess High School Musical, they need that part. They do. The second, you know, quote, the musical. What is that adding? Well, checking with my friends in the department, <laughs> uh, redundancy department. I get you know, just sort of, hey, did we mention it was a musical? It's, oh, so their song. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. their song. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. I, uh, I, I couldn't figure out how to work that into a news item, but, uh, but I'm mm. glad you brought it up. All right. Going back to Stephen's question. I know uh, it was last year or the year before that Disney upgraded the digital TV boxes avail- or the, you know, the digital technology available in the hotel rooms to allow for things like this. So, for example, in, uh, in the Grand Destino, you can use your subscription services mm-hmm. to watch TV. So if you happen to have you know, subscribed to Disney+, Plus, you'll be able to watch that using your own subscription in the hotels as well as getting the free previews. Michelle and Alice were down at Disney last month. And Alice was talking about how going through the various channels when they were staying at the Grand Destino, they have one channel now that's dedicated entirely to those Timon and Pumbaa safety videos. And I had no idea there were so many different ways to maim yourself on Disney property. (laughs) That's a good point. I didn't notice that. (laughs) With any uh, 24-hour channel, Jim, you've got to fill it with content. I guess so. All right, Jim, an update on our question last week from our BFF Kathleen about subscription boxes. Jim, I understand you've done some follow-up on this based on an email from the always vigilant John M., one of our listeners. So apparently there are three existing subscription boxes? Yeah. In fact, kudos to John for pointing this out to us, but there's a Disney backstage collection that that sort of highlights the history of the company. For example, a Disney Brothers Studio t-shirt that comes in a cute little canister. That's for $34.99 a month. There's also the Disney Bedtime Adventure, which comes with like little golden books and, you know, soft plush toys and that sort of thing. That's $54.99 a month. And then there is the Disney Princess Enchanted Collection, which is $74.99 a month. The idea is your daughter or son, whoever wants to dress like a Disney princess, this arrives every month with a brand new tiara or the like. Yep. I'm fascinated by the price points because the time that your daughter is interested in being a Disney princess is finite. So you've got to make hay yeah, while the sun shines. Like 20, 25 years tops. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, the $74.99 price point, you know, makes perfect sense. On yeah. the other hand, your Disney backstage collection, that's aimed more at the adult. And let's face it, the person who's signing up for that. DVC member probably has already subscribed for Disney Plus, probably has an annual pass. So, you know, you don't necessarily want to gouge that person. So, yeah, because they're going to be around for a lot longer. Yeah. So, 30, that's exactly. 30, $35 a month. That's an, that's an excellent price point for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we did talk 
a little bit on, on the last show about Disney Parks' previous experiment with this, the the Ghost Post, which yeah. the whole thing, it was a three-month-long experiment, had a price point of 199 per person. Per month. Well, there were only 999 of these things made. And as I understand it, it was a one-time fee of 199 Okay, and it so. Got you the three boxes. Okay. I guess the problem was, again, because, you know, the Haunted Mansion fans are just so passionate. And this supposedly had an in-park component that didn't exactly thrill folks. After that, it was like, okay, maybe we don't (laughs) do this again. Here was Disney Parks sort of doing that survey work and testing the waters to see whether or not they wanted to come back into this field especially out ahead of the 50th. So going to be interesting to see what happens here. Yeah, I was uh, I was surprised to find out that the three collections already existed. So thanks to John for uh, for sending those in. Yeah, and yeah. It's uh, the analysis on the different price points, I think, is really, really good. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim, our, uh, our effervescent friend Martin writes in uh, with a question for me, actually. Mm-hmm. It says, a question for Len. I might have ridden the Skyliner with you. I wish I'd said something. I was at Disney World the last week of September on the Friday before the system broke down. I was riding to the studios with four strangers, a mom with two young and adorable girls, and a man of my generation. Were you that man, Len? He had a lot of equipment, smiled, and didn't speak. I will say this, Martin, yeah, probably. I was, uh, was actually riding the Skyliner that week uh, for a variety of reasons. I definitely went to the studios. Yeah, entirely possible it was me. Should have, should have said something. These days, though, it's, it's so much easier to identify you when you get on the Skyliner on the heel of the breakage, what is it? So you bring the, the cooler full of food, the, the portable toilet. Yeah, it's just easier for me now. Yeah, I bring yeah. all over my regular analysis stuff, you know, the, the thermometer, the wind gauge, and also the rappelling gear, my emergency <laughs> base jumping parachute, my portable toilet, and a backpack full of uh, snack mix. Yeah. Yeah. I like to be prepared, Jim. I like to be prepared. I understand. All right, Jim, something quick on Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. Our friend Dan over at WW Magic noted this week that the construction permit for Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway was quietly extended to run through June 30th, 2020. It was originally scheduled to expire on Halloween last week. Jim, why did, uh, why did Disney need to extend this out? This is for Disney, a, a company that has so much experience now when it comes to static projection shows. I mean, you know, right. whether you've been to Disney's Hollywood Studios and seeing the amazing stuff they do in the Chinese theater, or for that matter, the couple of brand new shows that they've walked out just in the past year for Mickey's Not So Scary. Yep. Looked really good. Some great effects. That, yeah. Some oh, great no, effects absolutely. That. But the downside is this is the first time they've done it inside of a building with a moving vehicle, and it's proving to be a bit more challenging. Mm. The thing that's frustrating at least folks who work at the Disney call center, they just did a huge promotion sending up thousands upon thousands of mailers yep. selling holiday packages for uh, 2020, stressing that this attraction would in fact be open come the spring of 2020. And, you know, when you extend your construction permit till June, and remember, winter doesn't start till December 21st, and summer doesn't start till June 21st. So yeah. there's suddenly another two-month window that's sort of on the outermost edges of spring that, frankly, when you're, you know, you've already lured people to book Disney World vacations by insinuating that, oh, Mickey and Winnie's Runaway Railway will be open in spring, but you list dates that start in March and April. Yeah. That's not a good situation. 
it looks like then they're going to take they, they're going to take advantage of every day in spring and have this thing open for uh, post Easter. I hope. I, I legitimately hope. You know, the irony is everything I've heard about this ride is spectacular. But again, it's just there's this new mantra at Disney that you know to the effect of, especially on the heels of Rise of the Resistance, and again these tech issues with Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. It's like. Can we just make something simple that you can turn the key on? Because so many of these things that they're doing right now are so complicated that all it takes is one element to fall out and suddenly you have a show that you you have to shut down and cycle and dump all those people out of vehicles, dump all those people out of the queue. Which, again, is not a happy vacation experience. Okay. So, that, yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. What about Remy's Ratatouille Adventure? That's still on schedule for summer 2020, right? And, again, summer ends, what, in September? Yeah. Yeah. So it's possible that it's possible that we could have Mickey and Minnie opening in June and Remy opening in July or August. Yeah. But the interesting thing is, from what I'm hearing from the Ratatouille folks, because, again, remember, we, we've had – Upwards of, you know, five years now of, you know, Ratatouille operating at the Walt Disney Studios Park in Paris. There was actually a decision that came down from on high to the effect of don't reinvent the wheel. We know this works. We have all of this operational data. Right. Just bring it to Florida. And yeah. I guess that was the the one concern about Ratatouille, especially uh, because of it keys off of those a trackless system and it was just sort mm-hmm. of i guess that made the concrete pour of the floor for that building nightmarish because it, it had to be a certain smoothness a certain thickness oh right it had to be just so for the uh, for the wire and stuff yeah yeah and sorry, for again the it, it, yeah. as anybody will tell you pouring concrete in florida and the you know what is the humidity today oh well okay yeah it can get challenging but it looks like those things will open within a few months of each other I wonder if some of this is going to help Disney out, though, because the summers have been soft in terms of mm-hmm. attendance the last couple of years for a variety of reasons. And we've talked about this, but I wonder if they're, uh, they're not unhappy about having two things to open in the summer for people to plan their trips for. At the very least, there's got to be somebody in consumer products who's looking at, wait a minute, we've got Ratatouille and, and Mickey and Minnie's Wonder Woman opening in the same three to four month window. It's like... How many rodents can I put on one shirt? (laughs) Exactly. All right. Uh, Speaking of rodents, Jim, we're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, you are going to tell us more, more, more about Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, Jim, 
We talked earlier about Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, and this is going to be the first Mickey Mouse dedicated ride in Hollywood Studios, right? But this isn't the first time that that Disney has tried to do a Mickey Mouse attraction, right? If you, you go all the way back to 53, when Herbie Ryman was putting together the first map that Roy was going to take to New York to look for corporate partners, you know, for the Disneyland Park in Anaheim. Mm-hmm. That park, or at least that iteration of the park, didn't have a Tom Sawyer's Island. It had a Mickey Mouse Club Island that you could go there. And the clubhouse, supposedly, from the TV show and that sort of thing was going to be replicated there. And there were trees to climb and that sort of thing. And Mickey had been the company's star since 1928. But the problem was that... He had just become so nice over time. I mean, you know, the, the black and white early Mickey was feisty and fun and fought. And as he became more sophisticated and became the company's corporate symbol, you know, a lot of the fun went out of the character. And Disney kind of learned the hard way that people weren't necessarily all then enamored about going to see Mickey. The very first fall that Disneyland was open... Walt, at very great expense, created the Mickey Mouse Club Circus, which was a separate ticket once you got inside of Disneyland. They, they did two and three performances a day. And when they finally wrapped up in January of, of 1956, you know, Walt was looking at, at what they'd earned and they'd actually managed to lose $375,000 on the wow. circus. In 1950s money. Yeah, but again, this was the thing. It's it's Mickey. We, we you know, and people supposedly want to see Mickey. So, so they're like, okay, let's not do a big attraction. Let's let's do some walkarounds for the parks. And so, initially, they borrowed the costumes that Ice Capades was using when Mickey and Minnie went out on the ice. But over time, they realized that doesn't really work for the park, so they put Bill Justice in the job, and you know, he worked on different iterations of the Mickey costumes, you know, well into the sixties. Meanwhile, Walt himself was, you know, really kind of wanted to do something with Mickey for the parks because he'd felt that since Fantasia, he hadn't done right by the character. And so they put together, you know, and it's kind of ironic because these two projects were moving through Disney side by side in the early 1960s. It was the Mickey Mouse Review. Of course, obviously, eventually opened in 1971 as part of the opening day lineup of Walt Disney World. But Mm -hmm. Walt just liked the idea of carrying on the idea of the Mickey's Opera House uh, short. You know, to be in a theater where you're surrounded by the characters and they're performing on stage for the audience. But, of course, we lose Walt in December of 66. And the Imagineers eventually bring Roy O in and are trying to get him to sign off on what they're going to build in Florida. And when they showed him the presentation of the Mickey Mouse review, he was, it was the only thing that Roy actually said, you know, from the first moment we're building that, that's something my brother wanted to do. And this thing we're doing in Florida has to honor his memory. So let's build that attraction. Okay. It's called the Mickey Mouse review, but Mickey is, is the conductor of the orchestra. He's on stage for a few moments. And then the, the focus basically shifts to the other vignettes that are being presented around the stage. And, kept running into the same problem. Mickey was just too nice a character, not strong enough to carry an attraction. And we jump ahead to the mid-1970s now, and the Imagineers still want to do something in Disneyland that, uh, you know, that honors Mickey. And what they decided to do is, like, because the modern Mickey is just so bleh, 
they created an attraction called Mickey's Madhouse. And the idea was that it, the entire attraction was going to be a celebration of the old Mickey Mouse black and white shorts. That oh. pie-eyed Mickey, that was the color scheme of the entire attraction. In fact, I wonder if it would actually work today, because I remember talking with Bill Justice about this thing, and they were talking about how they really wanted to take advantage of strobe lights, you know, for transition scenes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe not the best idea for, for people with seizures, but uh, yeah, okay. All right. That's it, exactly. Uh, but this okay. project was also supposed to be part of a an entirely new land for Disneyland called Dumbo Circus Land. And as part of that, this being the era of let's do big animatronic shows, they had uh, the Circus Disney show, which was filled with animatronic representation of characters like Carol Arbel Clown and Horace Horse Collar. And, and Mickey, when you got to see him, he was the ringmaster of the circus. Anyway, looping back to the Mickey Mouse review for Walt Disney World, that closed in September of 1980, which was kind of unusual. It was a popular attraction. But the folks that who were doing Oriental Land Company, who were, were paying Disney to build Tokyo Disneyland, and they decided that they wanted a show like the Mickey Mouse Review. And here was, again, September of 1980. Epcot is already starting to get out of control financially. And what Disney realizes, like, well, look, you know, if they paid us to make a Mickey Mouse Review, if we take the Mickey Mouse Review that we have and send that over to Tokyo... We yeah. can then take the money we save and apply that to an Epcot. In fact, that's one of the reasons why when they finally reopened the theater in Fantasyland, they wound up playing the 3D movie Magic Journeys in that space. Because again, it's like, well, we, we sent the money to Epcot. Let's bring the show from Epcot over here. Then, of course, you know, we, we all know about, you know, what happens in uh, the mid-1980s. Disney finds themselves a few months out from Mickey's 60th birthday, realizing they are, there are no plans yet to celebrate that in the park. And Michael Eisner decrees, we're going to change that. And inside of 100 days, they build and open Mickey's birthday land at the Magic Kingdom, which is this enormous success. So come January of 1990s, here's Michael Eisner announcing the Disney decade. This vicious slate of ride shows and attractions are going to be built at Disney parks around the globe. And we get, uh, for example, as part of the Disney MGM expansion, this is uh, sadly a never built part of Sunset Boulevard, but it was supposed to be Mickey's Movie Land, which was going to be a recreation of the Hyperion Studios. Hmm. There was also going to be the Character Suites Hotel, which was going to be built outside of the Magic Kingdom, kind really? of over where Bay Lake is right now. A character-themed hotel. Yes, and it was, but it was taking everything that they'd learned from Mickey's Birthday Land, and you've got to remember at this point they're also working on Mickey's Toontown for California. But the idea is that all suite hotel, where every aspect of the lobby, the rooms themselves, right down to the doorknobs, are you know leading into the rooms are ridiculously toony. You know, you you finally get to live inside of a Disney cartoon. I have a feeling we're going to see this idea again somewhere. That's too good of an idea to pass up. It is, it is. But at the same time, the downside of it was when they looked at it, it was like, we're talking in all suites hotel. Yep. What's it going to take to oper cost to operate this? What's it going to cost to you know to maintain this? And then, well, not only that, but I mean, how do you how do you build it? Right? I mean, not like you can go by the door at Home Depot if it's a cartoon no, door, right? That's it exactly. Nothing's going to be square. Yeah. Uh, all right. 
it was a, a crazy, crazy level of detail. But getting back to 1990 now, this is when Mickey's Birthday Land transitions to Mickey's Starland. Later that same year, we saw the Mickey Mouse starring in The Prince and the Popper featurette. This was especially sad because this was supposed to be the first of a series of uh, featurettes that were actually going to be made at Disney MGM's uh, the, the Magic of Disney Animation exhibit there. And because the film it was paired with, The Rescuers Down Under, didn't do especially well at the box office, this was a one and done. The two other films that were already in the works, Mickey starring in the story of Christopher Columbus and Mickey's Arabian Adventure got their plugs pulled. Yeah. And then in 92, we get Fantasmic at Disneyland. January of 93, we get Mickey's Toontown opening at Disneyland in California. And whenever Disney, the animation studio, does something legitimately funny and clever with Mickey Mouse. Like, for example, Len, have you ever seen Runaway Brain, the, the short from 1995? Oh, yeah, it's fantastic, yeah. Chris Bailey directed that thing, did amazing work. Disney management was so uncomfortable with the way the characters were portrayed and how violent it was and scary uh, that it came out in August of 1995 and promptly went back into the vault. And these days, oddly enough, that iteration of Mickey is one of the more sought-after characters because they just did not do any merch. Okay, 96, busy year. We have the... Tokyo's version of Mickey's Toontown opens. We also see a top-to-bottom redo of the the thing that's at Magic Kingdom. Now it's Mickey's Toontown Fair. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons they did it is these were all temporary tents that were thrown up, basically, again, in 100 days in 1988. And somebody kept going, we're in Florida. Hurricanes. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Sun. Hurricanes. Yeah. Maybe we don't want to do this, but let's make this a little more permanent. And then, you know, we have this five-year period where nothing really goes on Mickey-wise, but October 2003, we get Mickey's PhilharMagic opening at the Magic Kingdom. Has it been that long? It's coming up on, uh, on it seven, is, 17 it years. Is. And There's- what's weird is that I can't tell you the number of times I've been told that, you know, they're especially on the heels of the version that just this, you know, in 2018 and in 2019, Mickey's PhilharMagic First of all, it, it opened Disneyland Paris opened in October yep. of last year, and then uh, DC just, got one like six months ago. Yeah, yeah, it did. And I, you know, I kept hearing, you know, especially uh, you know, because again, it, it's uh, you know, uh, it's been so long since they've updated this film, and you've had yeah. musicals like Tangled, you've had you know, uh, Frozen, and these are gimmies because these are CG films. And people forget that 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 was actually one of the huge challenges of doing uh, Mickey's PhilharMagic is you had traditionally hand-drawn films like Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King that had to then be translated into CG. But to keep circling back to the same point, Mickey's only in this thing for seconds it's really He's not dumb. really in fill our magic very very not much. not at all you know but again part of the problem is mickey's too nice a character you couldn't feature him that way and in fact you know if we we jump ahead to phantasmic opening at uh you know the, the first at disneyland and uh you know 1998 in it's hollywood and then the 2011 the tokyo version and he's just mm-hmm. he's too nice a character and this is why thank goodness Paul Ruddish, in June of 2013, we start to get the Mickey Mouse shorts 
that Paul created. But Paul actually managed to make Mickey fun again. And in fact, it is absolutely no coincidence that there was literally a four-year period between when Paul did the first Mickey Mouse shorts and they became a hit and started winning Emmys to suddenly uh, July of 2017, we get the announcement of the uh, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway Project for Disney Hollywood Studios. I mean, this is Kevin Rafferty, the Cars Land guy, tackling this with, again, with this amazing projection-based technology, but with a moving ride vehicle coupled with the the stylization and the humor of the Paul Reddish shorts. And in this same window of time, we saw, as I mentioned, you know, so multiple versions of Mickey's PhilharMagic open up around the world. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we saw, you know, uh, Mickey Minnow's Runaway Railway announced in April of last, or, or sorry, April of this year, you know, that it's coming to Disneyland Park officially and will be opening there in spring of 2020. And finally, it's Mickey front and center, you know, the, yep. being the actual character we celebrate, you know, not just using his name to sell merch in the, the end of the post show shop, but this is him starring. But it, it took... Paul taking him all the way back to the black and white fun version of Mickey and finding a way to bring that into, you know, 2018, 2019. This is also a concept that is going to travel. Oh, sure. I forget who I was just talking with at Disney, but they were mentioning they had just presented this to the folks in Tokyo who are very, very interested, but obviously they have an aggressive build program going on. So it's, we're four or five years out before we'll see that attraction pop up out there. But I guess they're, they're looking at the New York Harbor area of Tokyo Disney seas, figuring that it would be a good fit there. Sure. I mean, it, it, because it's Mickey Mouse, it would fit almost anywhere. Yeah. But it's just, it's no coincidence, Len, that when they put the show in, at Disney Hollywood Studios, you know, it went into that barn of a building that used to house the great movie ride. And likewise, at uh, Disneyland Park, it, it literally is going into the old parade float barn. They had to create new storage, you know, space for, you know, where all the parade floats are to create a space that's big enough for this attraction. Because again, you need, uh, when they do some of these scene changes in this attraction, where it suddenly goes from a city environment to a forest in a second, it unfolds like this amazing piece of origami. I mean, it's going to blow people's minds. But in order for this to walk around the world, it's just sort of like, okay, so... Where exactly do we have the show space to fit something like this? Yeah, it's the it's the usual real estate questions for every uh, Disney theme park. Jim, also, uh, the studios is getting the uh, a theater where Sun Stage mm-hmm. used to be that's going to show the new uh, Mickey Mouse shorts too, right? So we're, we're getting sort of a two-for-one there. That was kind of a pushback from the folks at Disney's Hollywood Studios to the effect of, okay, I know these are popular on the channel. I know you can you go on YouTube and watch these anytime. But, you know, I also have international travelers that, you know, I also have, you know, somewhat older clientele. Is There's someplace they can actually go to see these prior to us getting right. on them because this is not your father's Mickey. You know, this is not the, the little bland character that introduced the Mickey Mouse Club back in the 50s. Right. This is a funny, active, colorful character. So they felt like they needed to, you know, at least do their due diligence and put, you know, give people who hadn't necessarily seen the shorts on the Disney Channel or YouTube an opportunity to see them out ahead of getting on the ride. It's, I mean, I think it's a, 
a good situation for the studios for a couple of reasons. One, they need they need more attractions. But number two, if you like the ride and you're not familiar with the films, you can bop in there to see a few films, you know, spend 15 minutes or so watching yeah. the shorts or whatever. It's another thing to do. Or if you like the shorts or if you've seen them before, you can you can see them and then decide that based on the shorts, you want to go ride the ride to get a, mm-hmm. a, an idea of what, you know, why you want to see Mickey Mouse. So that's... Uh, so Oh, it, it's a win-win in both cases. Yeah. And, and for those of us who love air conditioning, it's a win-win-win. Exactly. <laughs> it's still like 88 degrees here, Jim. It's, I can't. Mm. <laughs> it's going to make Canada all the all more fun uh, for next next week. Looking forward to it. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's doing citrus peel carving in the talent competition of the Miss Mandarin Orange pageant at next weekend's Auburn Mandarin Festival in Auburn, California. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.